Hello and welcome to Close Reads. I am Tim McIntosh and we have a special episode. It's just me and a special guest today, David and Heidi. We are going to be back next week. We are doing a special one-off episode on a play, A Raisin in the Sun. And our special guest today is Dr. Anika Prather. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her in a second, but I first just want to welcome her. Dr. Prather, welcome to the show. It's a real honor to have you on. Thank you. I'm honored to be here to talk about my favorite play. I'm going to ask you, among many other things that I'm going to ask you, why it's your favorite play. So have your like home run answer, you know, <laughs> ready to pull out of your backpack. Because I'm really curious because, well, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. I'm going to not rave yet about the play, but I'm going to rave about the play in a second. And it sounds like you are too. Um, yeah. I just want to tell everybody a little bit about you. You're faculty on the classics department at Howard University in Washington, D.C. You're a English lecturer classics, there like in English kinda, classics. Mm-hmm. That counts. English classics. That counts. <laughs> English slash classics. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're also at Johns Hopkins. You consult well, the Department of Education there. Is that right? Yes. I, I've taken a hiatus. When I started working at Howard, I took a hiatus, but I am possibly going to get back to working with them again as well. And you're the founder and the head of school at Living Water School in Temple Hills, Maryland. Yes. Okay, so this is a completely random conversation that I had today, about four hours ago. I was having a conversation with a woman named Genevieve Peterson at Great Hearts Academies. Oh. And we were talking about something completely unrelated, and she was kind of bragging on their offerings. And she said, yeah, we even had Dr. Prather here. And I said, no kidding. I'm talking to her in four hours. (laughs) And she said, okay, you've got to tell her that our teachers have said that her kind of like continuing ed class that you did for them Mm. is like the best thing that they've ever gotten is what they said through Genevieve. Oh. Oh, that means so much to me. That's high praise. Yeah, it is. That That's means so praise. much. Yes. So we're really thrilled that you're on the show. Um, A Raisin in the Sun. I just finished re-watching it and rereading it. I want to ask you first, like, what's your first exposure to the play? Do you remember the first time you saw it? The first time you read it? It was the movie that you saw first? Tell me about that. It's the first... Um, I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie like throughout my life. You know, yeah. it's kind of a a staple. Um, and I love Sidney Poitier. Like my mom used to say when I was a little girl, oh, he's just so handsome. Uh, you know, it was like her one crush in, yeah, as yeah, a yeah. pastor's wife. Um, and <laughs> that was the one crush that she was permitted. Yeah. <laughs> but we would watch his anything he was in. And, and one of them was Raising the Sun. And then when I started teaching the great books at my parents' school, I started right out trying to find literature that connected Black people with the canon in some way. And, yeah. and I knew Lorraine Hansberry was definitely a, a reader, um, a broad reader. And then when I was studying Raising the Sun to prepare my lessons is when I discovered this line in here um, when Benita's boyfriend calls uh, Walter Prometheus yeah. as he storms out and leaves. And that was it, it, when that happened, she came a part of my my personal canon. Um, and so 
and that's and so I've, I it took on a new vision for me because here's this play that really talks about the black experience so specifically. Uh, maybe that's why I've watched it so many times. I can yeah. relate to it in so many ways. Um, and then somehow she interjects a Greek play, uh-huh. a Greek tragedy somehow in there. Um, and and then it just took on new meaning for me. It took, and, and then it, with that discovery led me to want to read her book, um, To Be Young, Gifted and Black, which is a book my dear friend uh, Lisa Richardson gave me when I graduated from NYU. Hmm. And I've just been a fan and, just a huge fan of Lorraine Hansberry through that through that journey. I want to ask a question first about Sidney Poitier, just okay. because that was my first exposure to the plays watching. It's like 1961 was the movie. Is that right? Something no, like that? Can't remember, but I think so. I 60s. remember, Anika, I could not take my eyes off of him. I mean, even when he wasn't speaking, even yes, when he's kind of he like was. on a sideline, I remember just thinking, what is he going to do next? Yes. What is he going to do next? And yes. it's so easy to look at. And I, I think the first time I saw the movie, that was my first exposure to the play. And then I went back and I read it. And then I've listened to different yeah. productions of the play. And my thought upon first seeing the play was, this is a story about Walter Jr., the mm-hmm. character played by Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Upon rereading it, or I guess reading it for the first time and hearing different productions, the other characters came much farther forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, that gives me my first question for you. Is he our protagonist? Or is this kind of an ensemble piece? Or is there a different protagonist who... Who's our protagonist? I have gone through different emotions with regard to Walter. <laughs> okay, okay. I I have seen him as the antagonist mm-hmm. for m- most of the time until for some reason my, I, I directed this play. Um, I, I purchased the play from, from Broadway, the actual script, and my students at the time performed it. And there was this one student who played Walter. I mean, all the lines he had to memorize. Yeah. And this is a young 16-year-old teenage black male got so into it that he cried. He would cry through different scenes. Like he really? could feel Walter's frustration. And so that seeing that live emotion gave me more empathy for Walter. But he frustrated me. And it was also shocking for me because I grew up loving Sidney Portier and I always saw him as a real positive figure, real inspirational character in anything he played. But in this particular play, he was not so easy to love. Yeah. And that was shocking for me. Yeah. You know. That line, um, early in the play, he's protesting to his wife, you know, like, you don't believe in me. Yeah. Um, you know, a man yeah. has a dream and what yes. do you, like the audio said at the beginning yes. of the show, yes. you say, eat your eggs. Okay. And then yes. his sister comes up and she <laughs> says what, you know, here's my dream. My dream is to become a doctor. Yes. And he gives her the exact advice that he does not want to hear from anybody yeah. in the play. Yeah. That's why he frustrated me so much. Yeah. I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. And it's funny because I think the first time I saw it, I just kind of overlooked that. Because yeah. I was so in love with Sidney Poitier, I just kind of yes, overlooked yes, that. Yes, yes, But now I'm just like, maybe he is. I mean, he's definitely a mixed bag. He is. I mean, there were times in the movie or any even, I mean, the movie really brings it to life. Sidney brings it up, brings it to life so well. I found myself, I was so angry with him. He yeah. was so bullheaded. He was just so um, difficult, so challenging. Uh, so unwilling to bend for what he wants to do. But at the end, um, you see that all of his frustration was he just wanted to give a better life to his family. Yeah. Like that, that is what, and I think my student bringing that to life, me being able to touch that emotion in my student as he's trying to play this father, you know, figure in the play, he really bought into to the character. And so, and I identify with that because I've seen my dad have that same frustration. I've seen my uncles and all the men I've grown up with 
uh, even now I see my husband, I see my matter of fact, my own brother now is going through this process. They just bought a new house and they're having all of this stress to repair the house. And he has, and he moved across the street from me and he's expressing that hurt and frustration over all these repairs. And, and all of it boils down to the frustration of, of honestly, black men often in America feeling like they can't give a better life to their families, always feel like something is working against them doing that. And the frustration of that, the fear of failing that. Mm. And it's pretty intense. Um, Someone I was, I wasn't talking about this play, but I was talking about this topic. And someone said, you know, while black people were enslaved, black men could not protect their wives or provide for their wives. So you know, there are stories of all types of horrendous things happening to slave women and the husband of the slave woman would, or the enslaved woman would have to just sit there and watch or just take it. Or if their children were sold away, there was nothing they could do to protect their kids from being yeah. sold away. And there was no, no, no sense of power. And then, and then we get freed and you get these different opportunities. Um, but there's always still something in the way of you being able to be the man of your family. And and Walter embodies that. He embodies that constant frustration. And that's why that line, eat these eggs. That's all you want me to do is eat these yeah, GD yeah, eggs, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, what he's saying is these eggs are cold. I always have eggs. I have eggs every day. I'm tired of just eggs. Basically, I'm tired of the same old life. Same old know? thing, right. Yeah. Right. Um, at the beginning of his closing speech, let me back up. Okay. I, ke- I kept thinking while I was watching the play that part of the evidence of what a great play this is and what a great playwright she is, is that whoever speaks last is the one that I agreed with. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. Every, whoever speaks last, I was like, that's a great argument. Yes. That's, that is such an appeal from who they are, from where they're coming from, from what they want. Yes. And so if it's Ruth, if it's Walter, yes. it, it, whoever speaks less, if it's George, for goodness sakes, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, gosh, yes. that person is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, so he speaks at the end and when he begins with, um, what are the, the mm. first line that he spe- says to the white guy who comes, who's offered to kind of like, you know, buy the house back from them. Mm-hmm. He says... What does he say? Like we're, we're working people. Yes. And it's so, it's like, oh no, we're going to lose. Yeah. I really thought like, oh no, Walter is, is like, Walter is going to, re- he's really going to give in here. He's going to kind of like believe the talk that in some way he inherited from his mom. Yeah. 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 But it turns, I mean, that's part of yeah. that monologue is we- it turns and he. And the powerful thing about that part is the word we. Mm. You know, all throughout the play, it's all about Walter. I have to be the one to provide for my family. I have to be the one to make this happen for my family. I need this to happen for my own uh, ego to feel like I'm the man of this house. And look, I've I've gotten this beautiful home for my family. Yeah. But by the end, after going through all of that, losing the money and, you know, all of that, and and how the family rallied together to still make this dream happen. Yeah. Walter learns this lesson that I don't have to do this by myself. You know, a lot of the stress, uh, and I, I keep bringing up the, the Black experience because that's, that stress is very real. I've seen it throughout my life, mm. you know, and the men around me. Um, and but I also there's another thing I've seen. I come from a very close family, right? So another thing I've seen is when that man goes through that process of feeling like this is all on me, I gotta fix this. When when they when the family rallies around the man who's supposed to be the man of the house and says, We're there for you. Yeah. We're gonna do this together. The wife, you know, I think about my mom. She was always saying, Honey, I figured this out. We're gonna do this together. You know, I've seen that happen. And 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 the kind of the rest that comes on him when he realizes he really isn't fighting this battle alone. Mm. So the play speaks to those dynamics. It speaks to that part of the black male that wants to be able to protect and provide for his family, but also speaks to the strength of all families, really. But the black family, especially that in the end, 
that strength has been what has carried us through. And, and he had to learn to rest in that. And, and kind of like let other people maybe um, carry the reins along with him. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, and the story really kind of also deals with a myth. You know, there's a lot of talk often about the breakdown of the black family. I'm not saying that's not true, but we don't focus enough on the strength of black families. Mm. I mean, there is a strength uh, in the moms of the family. I think about mama, you know, and I think about um, his wife. And I think about, I mean, oh my gosh, how strongly, how strong she had to be to deal with his mood swings. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And keeping things going in the family. Right. And they all come together in the in the in the end. And and that's that is pretty common. You know, that the cousins, the uncles, the mothers, the grandmothers and the fathers and the husbands and the cousins coming together to move forward. I, th- I think one of the, the moments at the end of the play, when Walter turns to his sister and says, she's going to mm. be a doctor. Mm. I, that may have been like the moment. It, it was the, the moment. moment. Like, because I think, yes. I think right up until the end, I'm like, this is going to be a sad yes. ending. It's yes. not going to be a victory. But when yes. he says she's going to be a doctor, like yes. everything pivots. Yes. Like yes. he believes everything. in her. He believes He's everything. willing to like, he's going to fight yep. for her. And yes. okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, I, and she needed that from him. She, you know, they had been art. They've been fighting through the like horrible, tense moments between the two of them. Yeah. You know, but that's her big brother. And then that that moment of belief, you know, to see her response to that was really powerful. Because she for me, she has as much fight in her as yes. Walter has. It yes. manifests in very different ways. But she is her mother's daughter. She is yeah. her father's daughter. And man, yeah. she is ready she's ready to fight for what she has to get. Yeah. Um, And I think that she's kind of, well, this is nothing profound. She's estranged from Walter. Walter's estranged from her and the unity between the two of them at the end, in some ways it's even as gratifying as, um, you know, husband and wife coming together, you know, it's just so, so satisfying. And you can see a lot of Lorraine Hansberry in Benita. You know, just if you read when I was reading her book, um, Lorraine Hansberry's posthumous uh, autobiography to yeah. Young, Gifted and Black. It's really a powerful book. It was put together by her ex-husband or husband um, after she passed. And it's her words, her journal entries, you know, all types of things. Um, you see Benita is her. Mm. Um, you know, Lorraine Hansberry had dreams of being this great writer and being successful, but she, she did achieve. And Benita has dreams. Lorraine Hansberry didn't believe in God. Benita does not believe in mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. Lorraine Hansberry was very educated, very intellectual. Benita was. She wanted mm-hmm. to have philosophical conversation with these boyfriends that keep coming to the house, you know. Yeah. And um, she was always trying to tap into some new scholarship, you know, and mm-hmm. that's Lorraine Hansberry. And so a little a little bit of Lorraine Hansberry is seen. And so what you see beneath this estrangement to Walter, you kind of feel like Lorraine Hansberry felt that estrangement from society, too, because she was just very different than most people yeah. around her age and in her community. And, and Benita, here she is. Benita is classy. You know, she wants to be a doctor. She already is seeing herself as this well-renowned, wealthy doctor. Even though she's living in this house, that's yeah. a rooming house, yeah. you know, where she has to share a bathroom and a kitchen with somebody, you know, she's living in this little room and no signs of ever making out, making it out of that life. But she has already told herself, I am a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. I am a doctor. I am meant for more than this. And she yeah. believes that. And I think the estrangement is Walter looks at her and he's more pragmatic. He's like, you have all these dreams and, you know, we can't even get ahead, you know, and he he'd, he'd rather shoot her dreams down as opposed to to he, he wants to bring her hopefulness down to his despair. He, he I mean, the play starts out. You can feel his despair immediately, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and he's frustrated by anyone who's not in that space with him. Yeah. What do you make of Mama? 
<laughs> a big smile on your face. You know, I just, I, I used to see she frustrated me too. The only one I like, I really, uh, Benita frustrated me too because she was a little bit much, but I loved Ruth. You know, Ruth was. Wait, Benita was, Benita was but, a little but, bit much. How? How? Like, like she was she flighty? Was, she was not flighty. She was just just so headstrong it's like she yeah you couldn't tell her anything you couldn't really reason with her and she did, wasn't very empathetic to what walter was struggling through even though yeah. i'm more frustrated with walter what i got frustrated about Ma- mama is just the way she kind of let her kids be that especially with walter you know it was all like come here baby your mama's gonna fix it you know it was always yeah. just she didn't I don't feel like she confronted him enough. You know, she was just trying to always be present, always be there for him, comfort him. I sometimes feel like she was babying him through that, you know. Uh, she ba- And she babies her grandson. Well, oh, my goodness. Every you chance know? she gets. Every chance she gets. And Ruth is the only one who seems to be really, she's a good balance between hopeful and being the rock of the family, being supportive and having wisdom. She tries mm-hmm. to give this little bit of wisdom to the family to push forward, but her voice is a whisper in the wind oftentimes. Mm. And often overpowered by mama's mama ingness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um what's mama say um early in the play? I'm I'm not I'm not meddling. Yes. I'm not meddling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. meddling. And yeah. you're like, after the third time, you're like, Mama, you're meddling. You're meddling. Come you're on. Totally if you have to say meddling. it three times, you're yes. meddling. Yes. You're not letting Walter. You're really actually hindering Walter from being a man. Yeah. Because he chose a, a quick way out of his predicament because he had been conditioned for somebody to get him out of his predicaments, which I would say would be Mama. Huh. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to find the quote. Wait, let me sell that and see. Um, but it's the part where they find out the money's gone, you know, and right. he's crying and and she's consoling him. And oh gosh, I'm gonna find it. Um, so uh, while you're looking, I'm just gonna yes. kind of recap that part of the plot. So Ooh, I got it. Okay, good. go ahead. Okay, man. so well, Walter is re- he wants to start a liquor store and become a businessman. And he's got these two business partners he's going to go in with. And in this kind of moment, I actually want to ask you about this moment also. Mama, who has inherited all of this son, all all this money from her husband's estate, her husband has died. She gets $10,000. And in a moment, a really powerful moment, she gives... Mm. The care of the money. She she gives the money to Walter and Walter is supposed to set some of it aside for his sister for her medical training. Yes. And the rest he can do what he will with it. Yes. But then he finds out that one of his business partners ran off of this money. Money. And this is like, man, it's devastating. It's devastating. devastating when we find out what happened. I'm looking at the mom when she gives him that money. I'm yelling at the screen. Okay. Are you really? I'm like, you know what this child has done. You, he has, he has been struggling his whole life. You have seen his attitude. You've seen how um, um, impulsive he is. You, You see, he's not the responsible person he should be. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you gamble like that? But is mama always trying to give him that opportunity to be the man he's supposed to be. Right. And even, you know, so I wrestled with her. I wrestled with her not doing a better job of holding him accountable mm-hmm. uh, so that he could be. And, and, and then I, I, when we go to the part where they found out the money's gone and Benita is livid. Um, she, and, and this Benita she should be. She should be, but she's really harsh. Her words were really cutting. She says, that is not a man. That's nothing but a toothless rat. Mm. And mm. then, you know, mama has some words of that. And their mama and her are Benita's like, he's no brother of mine. And and mama says, What you say? You know? Yeah. I said that individual in that room is no brother of mine. That's what I thought you said. I love that part. You feel like you better than he is today. And that's so that's the one point that mama was on point. Benita carries herself like she's kind of better than him, better than the people around her because of these dreams that she has. Um and and so, but then finally. They're going back and forth. And she says, um, 
Mama, be on my side for once. And that mm. that was that was a truth because she was always very soft with Walter, very hard on Benita. So we see these like weird d- dynamics. You saw that he just did, Mama. You saw him down on his knees. Wasn't it you who taught me to despise any man who would do that? Do uh, do what he's going to do. And then she says, yes, I taught you that me and your daddy. But I thought I taught you something else, too. I thought I taught you to love him love him there's nothing left to love and then you have the whole monologue um, that mama gives giving trying to get people to see his frustration you know yeah um yeah and she's trying to get him to understand the struggle of this black man trying to provide for his family yeah but i struggled with her not confronting him you know and and that you see that pattern throughout the play that that relationship between a mother and her son i don't know if it's the healthiest one. So let me ask you this. Okay. If the roles were reversed and she had, and, and mama had given the money to Benita and she had done the same thing that Walter did, lost the money. Do you think that mama would have come to her defense the way that she nope. comes to Walter's defense? Nope. You don't think so? Nope. Nope. No, nope. And that's, that's, that's the source of your frustration or that part of the source, source of your yep. frustration. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And we talked about this at Howard today. Um, I'm teaching a class at Howard called Black Women in Classics. And we ended the semester reading this book by, I hope I'm saying her name right, uh, Chimnanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, she was very much inspired in her writing by the author of Things Fall Apart, um, Achebe Chinua. Yeah. And, and, this this is not a for those who are listening. I know we have a lot of different listeners. This is not a book book about feminism as we know it. It's it's simply about because um, she's a Nigerian writer, so she's talking about it from a very universal perspective. But she's talking about um, sometimes the inequalities and in how women are related to, especially Black women um, specifically. And we got into just conversations today in class about how sometimes um, in the Black family, the the Black family dynamic, you often see more of a burden, more of an expectation placed on black women. Mm. And then the the men often are, you got to understand he has the weight of the world. He's a black man. He's struggling. You know, you got to understand. And there's a more of a softness there, you know, and, and, and it's true. I mean, I, I experienced this even yeah. if I, I always tease my mother. I know that's your baby boy. Like I always tease my own mother about that with regards to my brother. My brother's wonderful, but there is, there is a, different way that mothers relate to their black sons than mm. they do their and and it and there's a lot of a lot more expectation sometimes um pressures to be strong and to to be the rock and to be the responsible one um and and we're trying to understand where is that carrying over is that carrying over because often black women enslaved had to be the ones to kind of be strong as they lost children as they're trying to navigate being enslaved and the weight of that. Um, and, and we were just trying to talk through that today. And so you see that play out in this play. You know, she's really hard on Benita, who lost her college money. Right, right. Through no of fault it, of her own. No fault of her own. And mommy lights into her. But throughout the whole play, Walter mistreating the women in the family, disrespecting the women in the family, being rude. She's just like, it's okay, son. It's okay. Mama's here. Yeah. And that just seeing that happen over and over was very frustrating for me. I bet. I bet. Hey, let's talk about the title. Can okay. you tell us anything about the title? Yes. Um, Raising the Sun is based on a poem by Langston Hughes, which is actually in the front cover of the written play. Um, do you mind if I read the, the poem? How about this? Okay. Why don't you read it and then we're going to have Langston Hughes read it? Or do you want to read it after Langston Hughes reads it? No, let Langston Hughes read it, please. Okay. okay. Let's hear. We've got a recording. Okay. <laughs> Make it sound like Langston Hughes like recorded especially for close friends. Yes. No, I don't know. Yes. I, we, I found this on YouTube. Okay. Um, so here's Langston Hughes awesome. reading Harlem. Oh. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? It's it's a short, yes, little grenade of a, of a poem, isn't it? It is. Grenade is right. 
Yeah. You know, and 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 uh, a dream deferred is I think it's from a proverb, a hope deferred. You know, that's that's based also on there's a there's a biblical reference there. You know, what you know, uh, there's a question. I think it's in Proverbs where um, I could read it to you if you give me a second to look it up. Yeah. OK, I'm going to show you. I'm trying um, to remember what the second part of the proverb is like it's like sour to the taste or something like that. Yeah, here we go. It says um, it's. Proverbs 13, 12, and it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So that uh, poem describes sickness, you know, like, the, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Mm. So I feel like he's basing it on that passage. Yeah. You know? And and when you see a raisin in the sun, you see this is Walter's hope deferred, you know, this, he's stuck, cramped up in this house, this little, uh, rooming house and he wants to move his family you know you see the remember the movie when they see the house it's a beautiful little house mm-hmm. uh, with a yard and it's plenty of space for everyone um these dreams of a better life that and, and he has become impatient waiting for this hope there's got to be more to life than these old eggs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and then finally here's this opportunity to buy this house here's this money um, even him taking the money, I'm not making excuses for him to reinvest it. He's hoping I'm gonna come out richer and make even more money. So we move into this house being really, you know, well off and everything for Walter is about hope deferred. And he is sick. Like yeah. throughout the movie, you're seeing his sickness because of his deferred hope. And it could go either way. It could be, it could explode. You yeah. Know? It could puss over and get smelly and this whole life family just fall apart. Yeah. Right. But it explodes for him. You know, it, it brings forth fruit for him. We got a bunch of questions from okay. listeners on the Facebook page. Um, really insightful questions. One of them mm-hmm. from Anne Marin Clemmer. She asked, she said, we hear a lot about Walter, Lena and beneath his dreams. Did mm. I just myth, miss Ruth's dream ah. beyond that of sunshine and space for her boy? Or is the absence of her dreaming a marked characterization of who she is and mm. the role she plays in the family? Ooh, it's possible I just don't pay enough close enough attention to her. Mm. She does kind of disappear, doesn't she? Or is her hope her family, mm. the health of her family? You know, you can see even with she has to work, too. But even with that, she's making sure everybody has their breakfast. She's making sure her son is doing his homework and goes to school. It seems like Ruth's hope is to have a healthy family and to have a home of her own. I mean, I think she she says that in one of her lines. I gotta remember that. I gotta I can find it. Um, when I think when they're talking in the bedroom, you know, she wants to wants family life and home life, um, not to be cramped up in that home that that rooming house anymore. When mama comes home from making the down payment on the house, I remember Ruth, her excitement just jumps off the page, Mm -hmm, jumps mm -hmm. off the screen. And I remember, of course she's in virtually every scene up to that moment. Yes. But that's the first moment that I'm like, Oh, this is what she wants. wants. Yes. Because she has these moments where she's crying. You can just what what's happening with Ruth is she is actually trying to hold in. Mm. She's holding in on a lot of emotions. And there is a there is an explosion of those emotions at that point. There's there's so you see her hope deferred. Yeah. You see the whole time she's like, Oh, we get this house. I can't take it in this cramped space anymore. I'm gonna lose my mind. Mm. Like that's kind of the feeling you get, you know? Um Wanting more for her son, sleeping on the than sleeping on the couch. You right. know, as a mother, you know, she wanted that. She wanted, she wanted, I think I feel like Ruth wanted to see her husband feel good about his existence too. I think I, I feel like Ruth in the in her silence and her quietness saw the the importance, the symbolism of this house, probably greater than most of them, if not all of them. I th- I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right. Yeah. And boy, she has to walk a tightrope with Walter. Yes, because yes, he's a time Golly. Yeah, right. You know? One false move. Yes. One false move. Um, in the movie, so Ruby D, the actress who played Ruth yes. uh-huh. in the movie, died a year ago? Yeah, not that long ago. 
and those, <laughs> she was so perfectly cast. Yeah. Those eyes, those yes. eyes do so much yes. work. Yes. You know, like she, you just like, you can, all of her silence, you can see so much happening in those eyes. And yes. even if she doesn't have like, you know, the carry away line, she still is so powerful on the screen because. I mean, and that's what, I mean, I think that's what made me struggle to like Walter is the way he treated her and yeah. his frustration. I just felt like there was no excuse for that. I mean, cause she yeah. was being a very devoted wife. She was being sweet. She's making him breakfast. He's like, I'm sick of eating these eggs, you know, like. Like she's okay, making make your own eggs. <laughs> right. <laughs> Be my guest. Make your own eggs. And he and throughout the movie, he is mistreating her. And she continues to be the devoted wife, but you can see the pain, like you said, in her eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um the name Benita. Mm-hmm. Is it a common name of the era? Is there something? Is like the similarity to beneath significant at all, or is it a oh, common name? Right? I don't know. I, I'm not sure, but I know yeah. that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Beneath that. Wow. I wonder if there's a symbolism that that word. I had not I thought know. about that. Yeah. Um, here's this question also came from Anne Marin Clemmer. Okay. And I'm really glad she asked it because my fiance and I, after watching the movie, we had this exact same conversation. So here's the question. At one point after Willie's betrayal with the money, Mm -hmm. Anne says, I found myself rooting for the youngers to take Linder's offer to buy out the house and regain the lost investment. Practically speaking, they could use the cash and maybe get a different house somewhere easier to live. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the play, of course, I'm cheering for Walter alongside everybody else, but privately... I'm wondering if his speech and pride are worth it. Mm. I think that's what, um, is that George, is George, Mer- is that the one that was beneath his boyfriend that kept coming to visit? Not Asagai, but there was, there was an Asagai. George guy. is the other, yeah. Yeah, yeah by the so, way, by the way, do you know who played that role? Yes. Uh, Louis Gossett Jr. I know, he right? looks totally different, doesn't he? He looks, looks totally so different, because like Louis Gossett Jr. is like strong, like big broad yes, shoulders, and George yes. was kind of, all slender. <laughs> right. And just kind of a, you know, kind of this geeky kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. But but now, you know, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. has the earring in his ear. He just looks really yep. cool, bald head. Yep. This guy looks very, you know, a lot more, a lot different, more conservative. Yeah. Is, I guess the word I'm looking for. And he, when he, that scene, that's one of my favorite scenes. He, because Walter's being mean to him. He's bullying him, basically. He bullies anybody who comes in the house. So he's bullying yeah. George. And George finally stands up to him and says, good night, Prometheus, you know, and which made me have to read Prometheus Bound. And I always mm. talk about that piece. And, and it's interesting he called him Prometheus, you know, because Prometheus is pretty stubborn about standing for what he thinks is right, even at the risk of his own life, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that 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 Lorraine Hansberry was making that connection and and almost basically a prophecy this is before he lost all the money. It was almost a prophetic word that yeah. you're, you're about to lose your life. You know, uh, you're headed down that path, even though Prometheus was noble to stand up for what he believed in. Um, the way Walter was just being bullheaded, wanting this house, wanting this for his family, whatever. And the way he was going, he was headed down a real uh, suicidal path, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. So I think, um, you you see these foreshadows happen like that, you know. D- did you at any point think, take the money? Take the money. No, I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. Um, because they did not want him in the neighborhood anyway. Uh-huh. And so I found myself saying, you know, they did not want the black family to move in the neighborhood anyway. They were trying everything to get them not to move into the neighborhood. <laughs> And I just wanted them to move in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted them to cross that color line and break those barriers. That yeah. to me was priceless, you know? And um, I'm one of those ones where breaking those barriers is more valuable to me than staying in your place yeah. and just having some cash. Yeah, right. And it seems like within the world of the play, 
This yeah. is the exact thing that Walter has to do. It's not yes. about the money. I mean, of course, yes. of course, it is. It is about the money, but for Definitely. him, it's not. It's about like there's something higher and yes. bigger for him, right? Yes. yes. And and you didn't. I did not want him to succumb. Like he started out as a fighter. We're gonna get this house, and then he's he's broken. You know, yeah. he's broken. All hope is lost, and he could easily take the easy way out. And I'm sitting there watching the movie. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't give in. Find a way to make this work. Break that barrier, you know? Um, yeah. and, and and by you doing that, you are setting a standard for your son and for future generations. Yeah. That you don't have to stay in your place, you know? Yeah. I, if he would have taken the money at the end, I think, I think just if the play had ended that way, I think every viewer would be like, you know what? I don't blame him, but this is a sad play. This yes. is not a this is not a victory. Yes. This is not a redemptive. There's no redemptive moment right. at the end of this play. Right, right. And the play actually is a blueprint for how to make it. Like, because I like the way they're like, we're gonna do this, we're gonna work these odd jobs, we're gonna pull our money together and we are going in this house and we're gonna be okay. Mm. Um, so it was, it was hopeful, but it was also instructional. It, it, it was teaching black families or anyone who feels, uh, like they are the, um, that, you know, the, the underdog that here is how you do it. Yeah. You get your community together, you join together as one and you move forward to your dreams. Like mm. as long as you have breath and you have community, you can push forward. Mm. That's what I loved about it. So you le- you left it. You feel this pain. You feel this heartache of this family. You're still irritated with this man for losing this money. But you you number one, he did become humble. Like he didn't keep trying to, like he was like, I'm sorry, mama. I'm sorry. You know he he owns what he did. Yeah. And and his humility with how he reaches out to beneath that you're going to be a doctor and he gathers his family and we're going to do this. And there's love there and there's forgiveness and there's humility and there's community. So you see that they're going to go forward. They're they're winning, but they also are giving us a lesson that in community together, we move Mm. forward. Mm. Yeah. I've got a question from a teacher named Megan Albright. She says, I would love it if you could discuss any comparison of this, like the themes, possible tragic flaws with, so this play with Macbeth. I teach this play alongside alongside of Macbeth with my 10th graders. So dreams versus ambitions, nature versus nature, especially as they discuss privilege versus uh, relegated backgrounds. Any of these kinds of thoughts or literally anything you think of since... So I think this is to me since you're also yes. um, Shakespeare master. Yeah, I, I love Shakespeare. Just so long as I've read Macbeth. So I, oof. There's, there are lines that Lady Macbeth yeah. has. Um, so Macbeth promises Lady Macbeth, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going okay. to take down Duncan. We're going to take down <laughs> the king, right? And then he yes. goes out and he gets a moment. Yeah. And he thinks about it yes. and he's like, you know what? This is just about my ambition. I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. So he goes to her, hey, Lady Macbeth, we're not going to do this. And she's like, what? Mm. Yeah, we are. Mm. And the thing that she goes after is his manhood. Mm. And she says, when you durst do it, then you were a man. Mm. But now you are no man, you know? Wow. Yes. And it's apparently wow. a pretty convincing argument yes, because yes. he goes through with it, you yes. know? And, and she has Walter. these other lines. Yeah. Um, but isn't that what it's all about? Like, that's why Walter was acting the way he was acting. His It was about his, everything was about, that's why he bullied people. That's why he acted so ugly with everyone. He, was, he even bullied Benita so much because she threatened his manhood. And that, like and you said, like those lines that you yes. read... That's yes. what she goes after. Yes. His manhood. Yes. His manhood. Uh, and it's and so that doesn't help, you know? Right. And he's right. surrounded by all these women. His Walter and his son are the only two men. It's like his sister, his mother, his wife. Mm-hmm. And he's seeing them all as a it's just kind of challenging his manhood. Yeah. I wonder if that's what made him so restless, so frustrated throughout the movie that wherever he looked around, there were these women questioning his manhood mm. or, he, or that he perceived they were questioning his manhood. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can you can you tell us what Lorraine Hansberry thought about um, Asagai? Mm. Um, that part of the story is both really compelling to me, and yeah. I also feel like it's kind of like lost in the mists <laughs> of history a little bit, right? Like late fifties, early sixties. So yeah. I'm I'm gonna I want you to correct me here. Part of me was kind of like okay. Malcolm X is kind of making a similar call yeah. here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like this is, there's something fundamentally broken about the American experience. Yeah. So why are we going to pursue this? Yes. Yes. Let's yes. go back to, let's remember our roots. Yes. It feels like Asagai is that voice. Is that, am yes. I right there? Yep, you are. And it's Benita, and that's what Benita is struggling with. That's actually why Benita is struggling with her relationship with George. Mm. Because he he represents to her what's comfortable, what's acceptable. And you have asked a guy over here, you know, that represents her roots. Uh, when he speaks, when he's relating to her, he's challenging her to think beyond what's comfortable. And I mean, he he actually could be the one making her more and more fiery breaking her out of what's comfortable that his whispers to her are challenging her thinking. I think a lot. And she wants to challenge her family's thinking to think outside of that one room they share that box that they're in. And then also, um, how can I explain this? This is why this play is so amazing for, for us. There has always been this process that black people go through where we want to reconnect with our roots mm. And Asagaya symbolizes that. Benita wants that, you know, from how she's doing her hair to wanting to wear certain things. And I think, didn't she dance? I think she tries to dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's trying to connect with her roots. And Asagaya is saying, you're so much more than just a Black American. You know, there, here's this other side of you that you don't even know that you need to tap into. Um, and George frustrates her because she's not very nice to George either. See, Benita, she frustrates me too. You know, <laughs> because he obviously cares a lot about her, but she's not impressed, you know, yeah. with that. Yeah. But she's very impressed with Asagai and the way he's challenging her um, thought processes and not being comfortable. I, I felt really torn with him mm-hmm. because... He does have this like really different vision of what life can be, and it's it's yes. inspiring. But on the other hand, I read him as really, on occasions, condescending to oh, her. Yeah. Yes. And is that is that? Do you read that more as male female or African? Cultural. Um, yeah. Cultural. Yeah. Cultural, because he he knows her desire to tap into her roots. And he knows, all right, I'm with my roots. I, I haven't gone through right. your experience. Yeah. You know, this is not even my home. I'm just here studying. You know, I'm not, I'm very confident who I am. I know who my ancestors are. And he is kind of arrogant about that. And yeah. she wants that confidence. She's got it. By the end of the book, <laughs> she's got it. Oh, man. Yes, indeed. Um. Speculate, says Anne Marin. Does Benita marry Asagai and practice medicine in Nigeria? Is that what she truly wants and will that fulfill her dream? You know, and so you want, you want, the play ends where you want there to be a part two of Raising yeah. the Sun. But, you know, um, Lorraine Hansberry dies, you know, very young, just a really few years young. later, for ovarian cancer. And I often wonder if she wanted to end it because it ends with him saying, I think you're going to marry George. Mm. And so I, I, I think she ultimately, I think that for, it's a kind of like a hint that she's going to choose the comfortable life. She's going to, I believe she's going to be a doctor, but I believe she's going to settle with George. That Asagai is too free and, and out there to, is too much of that for her to reach her dream of being a doctor yeah. and to have the life that she wants. Because one thing that George gives her is the sense of, um, society you know when she goes out on dates with him they go to nice restaurants and she feels like she's part of some elite group you know mm. with him and so Asuka represents something else that I don't think she can settle down with he's kind of a wild fantasy whereas George is I think she's I think we can speculate that we don't know what happens that she chooses the safe route with regards to that 
And she comes to appreciate George's stability, I think. I mean, that's what I'm assuming based on how yeah. the play ends. Yeah. I, I think I'd speculate in the same direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to say something here. I, I, okay. I was, I've been so worked up about this play. Yeah. Um, Anika, I don't know that there's a better play written in the 20th century. It's a phenomenal play. I honestly, I was, I told my fiance that last night. It's like when you read, when you read a really great play, um, yeah. I think. Uh, Hedda Gabler. I think Hedda Gabler by Ibsen is an mm. absolutely brilliant play. Mm-hmm. And, and what mm-hmm. I read that in college, I wish I remember. Yeah, it's so read it again or see yes. the production of it yes. again. Yes, yes. What's what I think with any great play, like really great play, it's kind of hard to say what the primary theme is, even though this play is like so tight. This, yes. I mean, it's like you could say this is a play about dignity, right? Yeah. But yeah. then you say, okay, but isn't it also about family? It's okay, about family. Yeah, it's about family. And then so you're many like, layers. So right. many layers. Okay, isn't it about so like, many layers? Men and women. It's about men and women. Okay, isn't yeah. it about culture? It's about yes. culture. And it's like everything. It's about feminism. It's about yeah. children. It's about, it's about marriage. Yeah. It's about motherhood. It's, it hits you know, all it's, of these huge themes and yeah. yet black, white relations, yes. black, white relations, even. Yeah. But it never strays from kind of like the central story and the central plot and the kind of like crisp like yes. delineation of characters. It's those are not fuzzy at all. They're like right. crystal clear. Yes, 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 yes. And, it, you know, we, we haven't talked about another character, the gentleman from the neighborhood that they're moving to. Oh, you know, I, and I, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. I mean, okay. he, he, you know, everyone would like to say, oh, he was just awful. Was he though? Or was he stuck in the middle? You know, you don't sense he, you don't, you, what you feel, what I sense from him is in the movie, especially is he doesn't want any trouble, but he mm. knows they deserve the right to be there. Yeah. You know, instead of just, doing something underhanded or just being forthright. You don't, guys, you don't need to be in the same people. They don't want you here. He's like really nervous and he's, and he's, and he's trying to, he's kind of stuck in the middle. Yeah. You know, I look at him like that. He's not, you know, he's not your typical hateful person and he's yeah. not, and he's not necessarily opening the doors. Like, come on in and let's integrate. He's yeah. kind of like, I've been used to one way of life. Now there's a shift. Black people are allowed to move in these neighborhoods. They they should move to the neighborhoods, but people still don't want to change. And I'm stuck in the middle. And I just don't know what to do. You know, I, that's what I, how many people are like that? Right. How many people are like, I, it's. Okay, and can so you just he, throw them in that basket? Oh, you're just racist. Or is it really like if we, you know, Frederick Douglass in his autobiography talks about the master's wife. We don't. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the complexities of dealing with these shifts. I'm just going to be honest about that. I mean, people yeah. were losing, you know, white people were, lives were in danger, you know, for us being too supportive of black people. So there's a lot of dynamics, not to create empathy, too much empathy, but I want us to read the character correctly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I read a book, oh, maybe five years ago called... It was about the rise of Hitler in mm. Germany, but mm. but and it was and it was a historical document. It was about um, it was taken largely from the American ambassador's diary entries, and he was living in Germany like mid nineteen yes. thirties. And in my mind, like when the Nazis came to power. It was it, my kind of telling of the story was like there were all there was it was just like enabled by cowardice, yeah, just cowardice everywhere. People looked yeah. the other way, and after reading the book, I thought, man, nobody knew how bad he was going to be. Yes, you know, we look back and we know how bad he was, but nobody knew how bad he was going to be in the yeah. moment. Yeah, and so, and there would be these kind of like 
moments where the kind of proto secret service guys would, you know, like beat somebody on the street for saying the wrong thing, but it would be just a flash and then it would disappear for a while. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had to, I mean, in some ways, how do I say this? I had to kind of, um, renegotiate my moral outrage because Mm. there were a lot of people who, I mean, I'm trying to like, kind of like make the case that you're making about this guy in a raisin in the sun. Um, maybe he's not innocent, but he's not, um, he didn't have clear malicious intent or hateful intent or hateful intent. Right. Right. And you know what? I don't like that. I want to be morally outraged (laughs) against him. I'm serious. I do. And I think part of part of it is because when I um, (laughs) first saw the play, I kind of was like, wait, what is this guy up to? Because I didn't know the plot of the play. I was like, what is this guy up to? And then I can't remember what line it is, but he said... He finally kind of comes out with it. Like, wouldn't you be comfortable with your own people? Yeah, and I was with like, your own what? people. Yes. You know? I mean, and that's, and see, sometimes we, we talk about prejudice and racism in the terms of like Ku Klux Klan and lynchings, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. which is true. Like, that's horrible. And the, and the, the person says, get out of my store, no black people allowed. But here you see this kind of um, polite racism, I guess. Yeah. But I'm trying, I'm trying to read him. I, I watched this movie so many times. I'm really trying to read him. Is he racist or scared or in such a pick, just such a, is he racist or scared or what's the word? Conflicted. That's the word. Yeah. Or is he conflicted? Like I'm trying to read his emotion. Yeah. What is he doing? Why is he responding in this way? Instead of being a little bit more forthright about, you know, you don't need to come over this. You need to be with your own people. That really discouraging from coming. He's yeah. He's like, okay, um, you know, uh, you know, he's all nervous. Like, why are you nervous? You know, the actor in the movie, I, I think, is like he's great. really great. He's I really great, him. and he, he plays know, it. It's this perfect tone of like he is scared. He's to Winnie the death. Pooh. You know, yeah, he's, he's Winnie, the Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> if Winnie the Pooh was sent on just like a failure mission. Right. I mean, but he actually is the voice of Winnie the Pooh. Oh, he is? To my knowledge, yeah, he's he's the voice of Winnie the Pooh. So <laughs> and so once I found so that out, I was like, yes, right. <laughs> so fitting. Right. Okay, listen, um, I kind of want to put a bow on it. Have you seen the play Clyburn Park? Do you know about Clyburn Park? Wait. You know about it. I know you know about it. It was written, it won the Pulitzer 10 years ago. Okay. And it's the, you got to hear me right, prequel sequel to A Raisin in the Sun. Oh. Act one takes place, I think, a few years before the action of A Raisin in the Sun. Yes. And then the second half takes place, I think, maybe 20 years after Raisin in the Sun ends. I haven't heard of that. It's. Uh, I have to see that. You need to see it. You really need to see it. You really. I, I kind of want to bring you back on after you've seen it or read I it. Have, I've got. Yes, please. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to tell you anything about what it's about. Don't tell me because okay. it's going to be like in the next 48 hours. Okay. Okay. Because I'm always email. like this. movie. I, I have seen this movie and Rosh read this play so many times. And I'm always like, get to the end. I'm like. What happened to the family? Okay. You know, there's one one answer given. And what happened at the beginning to bring them to this place? Okay. You've got to see this play. You've got to see Clyburn Park. Got to see it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just going to say, I think part of the reason it won the Pulitzer is because it was just so timely Mm -hmm. um, as a, I think it kind of pales in quality next to a yeah. race in the sun, but it's yeah. still worth paying attention to. Yes. And it probably so, picks up some of these things we've been asking. No doubt. No okay. doubt. Okay. I'm not going to say anything else. That's going <laughs> to be like the cliffhanger. We're going to see if we can, I'm going to see if we can bring you back and we can, you and I can I talk about that. Yes. Clyburn Park. Hey, yes. I really want to thank you for thank you. coming on the show. Um, it's a real honor for us. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. And you're going to be speaking at the Circe Conference this summer. Is that yes, right? Yes, okay. to my knowledge. Yep. 
Yeah, okay, so those listeners who are going to be at the um, CRC conference and people who want to buy the audio of the speeches afterwards, you know what to look for, Dr. Anika Prather. Thank you so much. And I want to say to our listeners, thanks so much for the questions that you sent in and for um, being with us through the reading and the viewing of this wonderful play. And we wish you, as always, happy reading. Happy reading.